Several years ago, HAF asked leading Hindu spiritual teachers and representatives from numerous and philosophically diverse Hindu lineages for their views on the central teaching of divine oneness and how this can be applied to our daily lives, how it informs social issues, specifically social discrimination. Here's one of those replies that most resonates with me and which personally underpins my own fundamental beliefs about the relations between myself and all other beings. He who systematically sees everything in relation to the Supreme Lord, who sees all living entities as his parts and parcels, and who sees the Supreme Lord within everything, never hates anything or any being. For me, everything in my life stems from that belief. Applied to my social, economic, and political beliefs, it forms the basis of my conviction that while we all certainly are entitled to our likes and dislikes, we all have preferences and predilections. Casual social discrimination, treating someone less than how you yourself would like to be treated, goes against all notions of fairness, equality, and basic decency towards our fellow beings. It's a principle that I'd hope everyone shares and should be fairly applied to law, economics, and politics today. With all philosophical and spiritual belief systems, though, there's usually a gap between beliefs and practice of those beliefs. Which brings us to the topic of this episode. The highly complex, contentious, nuanced, often today misunderstood, and far from unified method of social organization and categorization practiced on the Indian subcontinent across all religious communities, despite what people would sometimes have you believe, known clumsily in English as caste. I'm Matt McDermott, and this is All About Hinduism, episode 13, We've Gotta Talk About Caste. Caste is one of the most complicated and misunderstood concepts encountered when attempting to understand India and Hinduism. Yet caste and a so-called caste system have become the singular focus of how Indian and Hindu society and culture are seen by the West and increasingly being focused on by activists within the diaspora. Part of the challenge is that there's no universally accepted definition of caste, nor is there a uniformly held understanding of what is meant by the English word caste, which is itself derived from the Portuguese word casta. What part of the complex historical, social ordering, and hierarchy of Indian society is being referred to? Here is part of the complexity. The various definitions of caste used by sociologists, anthropologists, Historians, Indologists, and even in common parlance may include, but are not limited to concepts such as birth, occupation, rituals, endogamy, or race. All depend upon presumptions that castes are homogenous entities with discrete boundaries that are identifiable in Indian society and exist in fixed relation to one another. There's also the presumption that the various categories lumped together as caste and social hierarchy correspond with economic class and wealth which is simply not the case currently nor historically. So-called higher caste groups are not automatically wealthier than so-called lower caste groups, nor does political power and access correspond with perceptions of social standing, at least not in all cases. The definitions or idea of a caste system also presume its pan-Indian existence and that communities belonging to particular castes in one part of India share something in common with similar castes in other parts of India, including perceived and actual social standing. Attempts over the past 200-plus years to empiricize these definitions created by Europeans about Indians 
have failed because the structure of Indian society has never corresponded with the colonial theories about it. Today, the closest thing to a pan-Indian definition of caste are the administrative designations under Indian law of various social groups. Two indigenous concepts that are frequently associated with castes are jati and varna. Jati encompasses a variety of social markers including ancestry, clan, class, descent, language and dialect, lineage, region of origin, religion, traditional occupation, and other only locally recognizable markers. Some jati identify as belonging to a traditional occupational community, but adhere to different religions, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Jain, Christian, Buddhist, etc., and or their members engage in a variety of occupations. Some jati share rituals, common ancestry, or adherence to a particular lineage, but are otherwise diverse in terms of traditional and current occupation, region, language, etc. Some jati practice endogamy across varying social markers and perceived social standing. Others do not. Boundaries between and amongst jati are also not always apparent nor discreet. Indeed, members of one jati may hold perceptions of difference in hierarchy and mistreat members of another jati in manners that are inhumane or unethical, and it should be said are in violation of the spiritual ideals of Hindu philosophy. Such perceptions, however, were and are highly localized, and are informed by a variety of factors ranging from social, economic, political, historical, even religious. That said, members of poor or economically deprived jati also do not necessarily concede an attributed inferior status claim by others, nor simply accept the claim superiority of others over them. The social standing of a jati in one region may be very different from a similar or even the same jati living in another region, and social standing can change when an entire jati moves from one area to another. Essentially, actual standing in any local hierarchy, even rivalries and frictions, have been complex. What's more, in the modern political landscape, some jati actually advocate for being placed lower on the government of India's caste categories so that they can more easily avail themselves of government assistance. Norms within and between various jati are not tied to sacred texts nor written social codes. They have historically been passed down through oral traditions and customs. Some of the Europeans' understanding of caste emerged from observing the norms and traditions within and amongst different jati, as well as other local forms of social organization and identity that they encountered and then combined and conflated into caste. There are thousands of jati in the Indian subcontinent across all religions. The Vedas make reference to four varna, that is, functional personality types found in most human societies. Various Hindu texts have come to use the term, which has a variety of meanings, including form, figure, character, and hue, to describe a way of understanding human diversity and purpose. In most societies, this typology contends there are individuals who are driven to pursue knowledge, to grow spiritually and impart knowledge and wisdom to society, Brahmins, those who exercise power to govern and protect society, Kshatriya, those who seek wealth creation and support society, Vaishya, and those who grow food, make useful items, or otherwise work to nourish society, Shudra. At the same time, personality or temperament and skills may change over time, and the social functions one takes up are not mutually exclusive to any one individual or group. As explained through countless sacred texts, stories, and poetry, and the interpretations and teachings of widely respected Hindu spiritual teachers, both past and present, Varna is based on an individual's personality qualities and tendencies more than any other factor. In theory, Varna is not hereditary or familial, nor is it a determinant of any established social hierarchy. 
Instead, one's varna is based on the individual's predominant personality type. Indian society was never organized nor functioned as only four varna, and certainly not organized across all the different areas of the subcontinent in the same manner. None of this, however, fully fits the earliest notion of caste, or lines into a caste system as imagined by Europeans. We'll get to that in a moment, but first we need to talk about caste as an administrative category in modern India. The Indian constitution guarantees equal rights to all citizens and prohibits discrimination on the grounds of caste, religion, race, sex, or place of birth. It also provides the state power to make special provisions for what is called positive discrimination. As such, groups listed or designated at the national or state level as scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, or other backward classes are guaranteed certain legal protections and eligible for special provisions. The special provisions make up a system of affirmative action that is intended to provide equal opportunity and greater representation in education, employment, and government at both the state and union levels. Most of today's SC and ST designations were largely adopted from British census operations from the late 19th century and early 20th century. Working with their understanding of Jati and Varna, British administrators struggled unsuccessfully to devise a pan-Indian list of communities defined as castes and ordered ostensibly by social standing. In addition to severe difficulties British administrators encountered in simply identifying communities by what they believed caste to be, on the task of assigning social rank, some districts avoided ordering, others ordered, but did not offer evidence, and some assigned orders with the assistance of native informants. British records demonstrate knowing that social identities and standing were continually changing, yet their idea of a pan-Indian caste system, in spite of it being non-existent in reality, has endured not only in public imagination, but in post-independence politics as census data and colonial designations of so-called depressed classes became the basis for Indian law. The idea of depressed classes was intended to identify communities not on the basis of only economic or educational disadvantages, but on the basis of particular social disadvantages. But even the standards by which thousands of communities within and across different regions of India were counted and categorized were counted and categorized as such were not only peculiar, but were not the same across regions. Administrators would change the standards if not relevant to their jurisdiction. Nor were the differing standards applied with any consistency within even the same region because of the difficulty of knowing where to draw the lines and the malleability of social perceptions. Regardless, the census exercises continued and resulted in an internally inconsistent class of communities, which outside of an administrative designation shared very little in common socially, economically, educationally, or politically. Then and now, each community designated SC, OBC, or ST had their own identity, origin, or ancestral legends, culture and traditions, and aspirations and challenges. And while there might have been overlaps in any of these factors, often communities sharing the same administrative designation were in conflict with one another. Since India's independence, few changes to the caste schedules have been made, though communities have been both listed and delisted. Not during British rule, nor today, are all communities in India that face social or economic disadvantages necessarily designated as SC or ST. Over the past several decades, there have been well-documented efforts of certain communities lobbying state governments throughout India to get designated as SC or OBC, 
in large part for the benefits associated with caste-based provisions, including quotas in public education and public employment, as well as moves to get removed from the schedules. There have also been demands to get benefits based purely on economic need by communities that have thus far been considered dominant castes. Understanding terminology or acknowledging the historical role of the British here in no way denies that prejudices, discrimination, or exploitation on the basis of various perceived differences in different quarters and levels of Indian society existed and continue to exist, and that some groups or communities have suffered more horribly than others. Let's pause and say that again, to be entirely clear. Discrimination and exploitation based on myriad factors that fall under the banner of caste do occur today, despite it being illegal and occurred historically prior to the British attempts at categorization and making sense of Indian social organization. In some parts of India, this discrimination was quite severe and specific, regulating what clothes a person could wear, or even if they could cover certain parts of their body, or how closely a member of one group could walk to another, for example, and much less so in others. When it comes to Hindu philosophy, such discrimination has occurred in spite of the teachings of divine oneness, not because any specific social discrimination is mandated by sacred texts. The fact is, though, the legacy of colonialism does very much inform not only the understanding of India today, but also impacts contemporary caste and religious dynamics in the subcontinent. Indian society is no different than any other society around the world in that individuals hold and act upon factors other than the inherent worth of all people. Without understanding the actual root causes of such perceptions, however, there can be little hope of resolving prejudice and discrimination and alleviating the harm and suffering that comes as a result. So that's a big nutshell introduction to the complexity of what gets clumsily called caste. At least at hope, after listening to that you'd agree that caste is a clumsy term. If you want to press stop now, please do so. But if you stick around, I'm going to get a glass of water and then discuss the rather fascinating history of Europeans' attempts at understanding the bewildering complexity of Indian society in the 18th and 19th centuries and how that's shaped how we talk about caste to this day. Okay. The idea of an Indian caste system as an unchanging, oppressive, and hereditary social hierarchy that is religiously mandated by and for Hindus is strongly informed by 18th and 19th century beliefs in white European and Christian superiority over quote-unquote dark races around the world and non-Christian religions. Europeans theorized that the whole of Indian society was organized as a fourfold caste system. Based on the categories of Varna we discussed before, ignoring entirely the significance of jati and a class of, quote, untouchable castes outside the main four. According to such theories, according to such theories, the system was created and enforced by a small and ostensibly oppressive Hindu priestly class of so-called false religions of India, with seemingly little or no opposition from the masses for millennia. As I said earlier, but it bears repeating, acknowledging the historical role of the British in conceiving an Indian caste system in no way denies that prejudices, discrimination, or exploitation on the basis of various perceived differences in different quarters and levels of Indian society existed, and that some groups or communities have suffered. But it also does not deny the reality of individuals and groups using social, political, and economic advantages, even the color of religion, to justify their standing and behavior towards others. But here's the thing. The legacy of colonialism very much still informs not only the understanding of India to date, 
but also impacts contemporary caste and religious dynamics in the subcontinent. I don't intend to offer a thorough investigation how the idea of a pan-Indian caste system came into being, but it's an introduction. In the show notes, I'll put an extensive list of academic sources for anyone who wants to read further. The caste system, according to the Europeans of a century or two ago, was pan-Indian, hierarchical, and hereditary. The four castes within the system were well-defined, homogenous, and religiously prescribed. The British also described a fifth category, outside of the four, that was made up of so-called untouchable castes, which would later be made into legal classification by the British called scheduled castes. That the practice of untouchability was sometimes mutually practiced, even amongst so-called untouchable castes, and not just imposed upon them, complicated matters, and was ultimately ignored. Embedded in these ideas was a racialized theory about the four castes. The upper caste consisted of light-skinned, more evolved Caucasians or Indo-Europeans from a superior civilization who, after invading the Indian subcontinent, relegated the indigenous, inferior, and less evolved dark-skinned people to the lower castes and outcasts. This theory, though lacking in any archaeological or textual evidence, would gain momentum throughout Europe, spurring the development of more racist theories supporting claims of white European superiority. It provided justification not only to the Europeans for their imperialist projects around the world, but also Adolf Hitler and his plans for building a master race. Numerous race sciences, such as phrenology and anthropometry, also emerged as an attempt to empirically support theories about non-European racial inferiority, including collecting data about skin color, skull shape and circumference, shape and size of the nose, amongst other body measurements to make assessments about evolution, intellect, character, and social status. While some European observations of Indian society viewed its structure as complex and shaped largely by social, economic, and political dynamics, others, informed by their own religious beliefs, as well as the then-popular theories about a civilized, light-skinned race invading and conquering the indigenous dark-skinned race, theorized that the caste system was devised and imposed under the pretense of religious mandate by a light-skinned Indo-European priestly class upon the dark-skinned masses. Early Protestant Christian accounts of their encounters with Hindus and their religious traditions reveal prevailing anti-Semitic and anti-heathen attitudes, especially with regard to priesthood. To prove both their own superiority, as well as the inferiority of Indians and other colonized populations, Europeans translated and interpreted select Hindu texts informed by their prejudices to, in turn, validate them. British administrators specifically sought out Hindu texts looking for something akin to Abrahamic laws found in the Torah or the commandments to better understand Hindu society towards the end of governing it. They interpreted philosophical and abstract concepts from Hindu texts through the lens of their pre-existing ideas rather than the lived realities or religious understandings of the Indian people. Whether and how indigenous ideas from different quarters and levels of the Indian polity about their own society and histories were taken into consideration is a matter of necessary research. The British relied heavily on one ancient text in particular, the Manusmriti, which was unknown to a vast majority of Hindus and had no authoritative role in contemporary Hindu life at the time. To this day, undue emphasis is placed on this text by social critics of Hinduism, despite it playing essentially no role in informing the spiritual beliefs of the majority of Hindus for centuries. Nonetheless, Manusmriti was made out to be the singular source of pan-Hindu law, 
especially where it seemed to validate British insistence on the existence of a formal system of four hierarchical castes in the way they envisioned it to be from time immemorial. Over time, other Hindu texts were similarly studied, and colonial knowledge about them deeply informed by their racial and religious biases. Eventually, the various theories about Hindus and Hinduism made their way into official British administration by way of numerous censuses, as well as policy. During the implementation of various censuses from the 1870s to the early 1930s, intended to collect information to categorize the Indian people on the basis of forecasts, British officials acknowledged that their theories about Indian society did not comport with the lived realities of the Indian people. In fact, responses to census questions about castes were wholly inconsistent. Indians who responded self-identified by a variety of social markers such as land, class, language, lineage, region of origin, religion, occupation, and others which were highly localized. The boundaries between groups coalescing around these markers were also not well-defined, but intersected and overlapped and were amorphous, permeable, and mutable. Community associations and affiliations often shifted with migration or changes in trade, wealth, or class. Relations amongst and between communities were greatly influenced by local historical, social, economical, and political dynamics. Perceptions of inter- and intra-community hierarchies across differences in wealth, political influence, social capital, or cultural practices were highly localized and fluid as well. And, as is true in all human societies throughout history, such perceived differences and notions of hierarchy did contribute to prejudicial and inhumane treatment with and amongst different groups, but this too varied greatly by locality. In short, identifying discrete castes in a uniform pan-Indian caste system as envisioned by colonial administrators proved not only contentious, but ultimately a complete failure. At the end of Britain's experiment, thousands of castes or communities were enumerated, not four. The absence of any objective or meaningful way of assigning status became obvious when Hindus across the subcontinent filled petitions and complaints disputing the rank assigned to them. Regardless of documented biases and failures, the theoretical four-tiered hierarchical caste system with a group of untouchable castes remained the singular way of describing and classifying Indian society and Indians. But by the 20th century, after numerous such census exercises, subsequent policies, and a particular history being inculcated through the British education system established in India, most of the Indian polity grew accustomed to thinking and answering in the manner that was designed by the colonizers and eventually adopting the classification system into Indian law. The way in which untouchable came to be used as a class of certain castes or communities is equally confounding. There's no equivalent term in any Indian language to refer to such a class or set of behaviors or practices. The English word untouchability being used to refer to practices of individuals of one community refusing to take water, food, or otherwise socially interact with another is surprisingly recent in origin. It was coined by British administrators in the late 19th century and gained widespread acceptance in the early 20th century in exercises and utilized in the creation of yet another British category, that of depressed classes. Untouchable was supposed to classify certain communities based on whether other communities considered interactions with them to be degrading. When this standard for the classification did not fit in a particular locality, however, census officials modified or expanded the category to include other standards such as whether the community ate beef or whether they employed Brahmin priests for rituals. They even included some communities ranked by census officials as lower, 
even though not the lowest because of their size. These social practices rarely occurred in the northern parts of India. The phenomenon was more widespread in southern India. It was also relative in that there were communities which had been categorized as untouchable to broader society, who were also untouchable to one another within the same category. This fact calls into serious question any notion that untouchability was a vertically linear system imposed by so-called upper caste groups on others. Regardless, census exercises and committee reports continued to be produced and resulted in an internally inconsistent class of communities, which outside of administrative designations shared little in common. Each community designated SC, OBC, or ST had their own identity, cultural traditions, problems, and aspirations. And while there might have been overlaps in any of these factors, often communities sharing the same administrative designation were in conflict with one another. Nonetheless, at the time of independence, the newly founded Indian government largely adopted the category of depressed classes and the communities or castes designated as such. Social discrimination in any society is a difficult topic to discuss. It exists in every single human society in the world in some manner. Discrimination, sometimes horrendous, sometimes subtle, exists in various ways in communities across India and South Asia today, and certainly has throughout history. There's no way to honestly ignore that. Or to say that it didn't exist at all prior to the start of British rule in India. Beliefs that one human group is inherently superior to another, and that superiority ought to be enforced through violence, economic and social deprivation, cultural memes and stereotypes are bluntly delusional nonsense. Equally delusional, though, is to either place the blame for such discrimination primarily on Hindu sacred texts, Hindu spiritual teachings and practices, or to ignore the historical role British colonial administrators had in, while not creating the categories which have become known as castes, in many ways making them more rigid and universalized than they had been previously. edited by me, Matt McDermott. This episode is largely a reworking of a series of articles on understanding caste for the HAF website written by myself, Suhak Shukla, and Samir Kalra in 2020. All About Hinduism's academic advisor is Dr. Shireen Bala. The show's associate producer is Sean Mallard. Before you go, leave us a nice five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Please also subscribe or follow us so you can get all of the new episodes the moment they're released. Also, Help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Finally, with 13 episodes done, All About Hinduism is taking a several weeks hiatus to rest, regroup, and research the next series of episodes, which we hope to release in the fall of this year. Hope you'll come back and join us then. Thanks again for listening.